Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Hello, great to see you all. Uh, thanks so much for coming along to this seminar and also for being part of uh, the big mental health day today. It's been a really, really encouraging day so far. Um, if you missed my early introduction, I'm Will van der Hart. I'm the pastoral chaplain of Hope Trinity Brompton. And um, Rob and I uh, started Minor Soul about 10 years ago. Um, and we've been, we've been working on it ever since. And uh, we also have launched uh, with Livability the Mental Health Access Pack, which we'll hear a bit more about later on. Um, and uh, we partner with a number of different organizations which are kind of included in our day. And we really encourage you to have a look at the site, the Minnesota.info site, and uh, you can find out a bit more about those different links and organizations. Well, I promised to talk um, this afternoon a little bit more about mental well-being, um, particularly relating to your leadership. And I'm going to talk to you all as if you're leaders, because you are all leaders. But you might be leaders in different settings. Some of you might be leaders in families. Uh, some of you might be leaders in care groups. Some of you might be leaders in, in the church. Some of you might be leaders of NHS trusts. I know there's a couple of those here today as well. So there's all different levels of leadership. But you're here today uh, to get equipped in your sphere of influence. And when I talk about leadership, I'm really talking about you in your sphere of leadership influence, whatever that might be. So please don't let the little uh, narrative of your mind diminish your leadership and make it small and unworthy because you are all having a significant impact in your place of life uh, at this time and whether you're influencing one person which might just be you for the better then you are in a sphere of influence and you're doing a good thing so everyone here I know will be influencing themselves uh, which is a good thing and also hopefully we'll be uh, spreading that influence uh, to others as well. So see yourself uh, as a leader. Now, whenever I talk about managing stress and pressure for your long-term leadership, psychological and theological insights to keep you effective and positive in your working capacity, people immediately go, oh my goodness, this sounds a little highbrow. I want to promise you, it's not at all highbrow. This is about actually how can we make uh, that leadership a reality, a healthy reality for our long-term. Stress seminars are typically bad for you because... Uh, <laughs> We have, this, we have a real dichotomy between where we are right now and where we think stress seminars will take us. And um, you are currently this person loaded up with bricks and, and all stress seminars say that you can be one of these two aspirational people standing on the beach, um, having just performed about three hours of yoga and had a healthy breakfast of fruits. Um, of course... The reality for your long-term leadership is not holiday-worthy. By that I mean one of the simple mistakes we make is to burn and burn and burn having booked something with Thompson's for six months' time. And we say to our friends, oh, don't worry, I'm fine. I'm going away to Crete in, in the end of December for a winter sun break. And you're, they say, yes, but it's only June. When, <laughs> but when are you going to stop? Oh, I'll stop when I get there. And I'm going to stand on the beach and I'm going to stretch out my arms to the sea, and I'm going to feel utterly relaxed. So what we do, you know, we have this sort of burn principle, and actually, it's not a good way of really living long term. What we need to do is to engage with our emotional health uh, right now, where we are, however bleak things might appear to be, and begin to work out a kind of healthy rhythm of life. <clears throat> Again, though, the internal narrative of our minds would say, Immediately, you are not living out that reality. You are failing immediately. And we're all thinking, oh, no, this is one of those seminars. I feel terrible. I've got to slow down. The voice of my mum always comes into my head. You've got to slow down, Will. You'll burn out. <laughs> I had a conversation with my dad at lunchtime. By the way, he didn't come to my seminar. He said the one about dementia was probably more relevant for him. <clears throat> 
I didn't actually argue with him. I sent him, <laughs> sent him down there straight away. Um, you know, he said, oh, you've got to be careful. You know, you're working very hard. It, it's true, but you can work hard and do really well. And actually, living well in leadership, supporting your mental health for the long term, is not about stopping. I mean, there might be seasons when it's healthy to take a break. But actually, I think there's a bit of a weakness narrative that goes on towards people who struggle with emotional and mental health problems. Like, oh, well, you're a bit weak, so you need to just stop a lot. And, uh, you know, stroke your hair a bit, and it will all be good. By the way, the best part of the day so far is someone who mistaken me for Lawrence Fox. Admittedly, she didn't have very good eyesight, but I'm going to take it anyway and accept that it was a blessing. <clears throat> so, the key thing is here, is understanding that actually our internal narrative will immediately be saying, I should be these people, but I know I'm actually this person. And we've got to be a bit more generous with ourselves and actually accept we are not the weak people. As Jeff Lucas says, there are no strong people. We will work out of a place of dysfunction and brokenness because this isn't heaven right now. But actually, you are strong people. And I think the fact that you are here, whatever the struggle that you have in your life, you're a strong person because ultimately you're sitting in community with other people. And that is a scary and difficult thing to do. But you're here today demonstrating incredible strength. So don't begin today by thinking, I should be here, but right now I'm here. What we need to do is work out the place that we're in and actually find a way of living rhythmically, healthily uh, for the long term. One of the things that people are particularly nervous about whenever I do a, a talk around this uh, living well for the long haul is the idea that they've got to put down those things that they're most passionate about. You know, actually, uh, the, maybe the Lord today is calling you to lay down your ministry. Well, I want to say that's not the case. God's called you into this. And God will resource you for this. The Lord equips those that he calls. That's not to say that we should brutalize ourselves and go, oh, I'm going to take on far too much because uh, I know the Lord will equip me. You know, but we've got, to take, we've got to respond sensitively to the call of the Lord, trusting in his equipping and also working alongside his call by being sympathetic towards ourselves and saying, this is what I need to do really well for the long haul. I am... Um, <clears throat> I would tell you about um, my only foray into marathon running. I've only ever done one. I would never recommend anyone do anyone, you know, do one ever again, especially not me. But um, when I did run a marathon, I didn't realize that, that what you wore was quite important. I hadn't actually done anything more than a 10K run before I ran a marathon, which is definitely a bad decision to make in terms of preparation and training. Uh, but we were running a marathon for a man who... Um, who'd lost his wife to a terrible disease called progressive supranuclear palsy, and some runners had dropped out. And so they said, oh, could, you, could I run with a couple of my friends? So we were like, great. We flew over to New York, and we went out for the night, which is definitely not a good plan before you do a marathon. <laughs> Saw the sights, did have a couple of beers as well, I have to say. The next day, we arrive at the start line, and we're given these really thick Fruit of the Loom t-shirts, which had progressive supranuclear palsy on them. And so we had to wear these really thick kind of full, rich, cotton wool-style um, T-shirts whilst we were running, because that advertised the charity. So I started running, thinking, this is okay, first five minutes, this is going to be fine. Didn't realize it was going to go for five hours. But, um, <laughs> but after about 10 miles, I'm thinking, this is terrible. My nipples are absolutely killing me. Now, this, these really thick cotton weave T-shirts were getting very sweaty and then were sort of rubbing up and down on my chest. It was progressive. Damage, I think, was the right way of working. I remember praying to God, God, I need a miracle right now. I need some Vaseline. Anyway, I was running up towards sort of through central Brooklyn. This is a gross story, isn't it? I was, I was running through central Brooklyn and this sort of blood 
like trailing down either side of my chest here, mixed in with the sweat, which is salty and very painful. And uh, just as I prayed this prayer, and I'm not, I'm, and this is no word of an evangelist exaggeration, a Puerto Rican man in a large leather jacket opened his jacket whilst holding a, a big tub of Vaseline just inside the coat. He said, hey, buddy, you need some Vaseline? <laughs> I was like... Yeah, you know what? That is exactly what I need right now. So I stopped and I kind of lathered my chest uh, with uh, Vaseline and I carried on running another 16 miles, which was very painful, but it wasn't painful for that reason. It was painful for other reasons, like my legs were aching and tired. And, and, and actually, I thought it was a really great illustration for this uh, talk about living well for the long term in emotional health. Because actually what you need to do is not stop running the marathon that you've been called to, but you need to run it in the right way and with the right sort of remedial equipment at your disposal. Actually, you need the grease and the wheel to help yourself keep working forward. And, and lots of people think about stress management, uh, this idea that actually we should stop. But actually, I needed to keep on running the race set before me. What I needed was some help, some kindness to enable me to keep running forward. And you know, in Corinthians 9, you see Paul reference uh, uh, three sorts of uh, workers, the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. And he keeps coming back to these all the time. They're in 2 Timothy 2, 4 to 6 as well. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. It's these sort of allegories of, of what it is to be in ministry and leadership. That you, The farmer can't stop farming. And the soldier can't stop fighting. And the athlete can't stop running. But whilst they're doing this work, they need the care and the compassion of the Lord. They need the ministry of the Lord. And they need, if you like, the practical resources of those around them to enable them to keep the t complete the task uh, set before them. Um, the Brit British Medical Journal says that stress, in addition to being itself, was also the cause of itself and the result of itself. And I think that's really, really helpful to think about. Stress, in addition to being itself, was also the cause of itself and the result of itself. That stress in leadership is this multidimensional experience. It, it's itself. It causes itself. The more stressed we get, the more stressed we get about the fact that we're stressed. And, and, and the more it results from its stress. I feel stressed, therefore I'm going to be more stressed. And, and we need to think about that multidimensional approach to the leadership that you're currently in. That this is not about external experiences of stress. I mean, they're always going to be with you. But it's more about your internal responses to those stresses. How can you diminish the, the mountain? It's not that you've not to keep on running. It's that actually, how are you responding to the stresses in your experience? And are you making them bigger? I've got a friend who I'm very careful about what I say to. Because if I say, oh, things are quite stressful at the moment. Oh, really? Are they stressful? How stressful? I'm going, oh, well, this is good. Oh, my goodness, I feel so stressed just listening to you. <laughs> I really need to unwind now. What should we do? Well, I'm, I was hoping you might come through with some resolutions. No, I just feel really uptight now. <laughs> You're going to be, you know, it's like you're sharing the information and suddenly they're becoming stressed at your bequest. But what if actually we're approaching this idea of well-being completely the wrong way? What if stress was actually good for you? I know, everyone's thinking, hands up in horror, surely not. Surely this challenge that I'm facing, this work I have to do, uh, is just too much. Well, it's a bit of a stretch. But actually, stress guilt 
is a powerful and common phenomenon amongst leaders, particularly Christian leaders. They tend to have very high levels of social and familial responsibility. And because stress has become quite demonized in our society, and particularly in the church, like everyone should be floating on a cloud along, just ministering the goods of the Lord. You know, clergy working only one day a week, apparently. The rest of the time, horizontal organizing the hymn books. We should all look super, super relaxed all the time because stress is wrong. Maybe it's off the devil and potentially it makes you look faithless. Therefore, when we're stressed, then we look guilty. So now we get really stressed. Maybe because of the sort of the nature of my work, the pressure that I'm under, now I'm really doing a disservice to the Lord, the fact that I'm finding it hard. And I would say to you, this is where that internal perspective is so fundamental to your long-term well-being. If you start throwing the baby out with the bathwater, oh no, I'm stressed. I'm li- oh no, I'm letting everyone down. Now I'm guilty that I'm stressed. Now I'm in real trouble. Now I'm in the sin zone. Things are really, really going pear-shaped. Now what we have to do is recognize that there are unhelpful, two unhelpful ways uh, in the face of stress that we can, you know, unhelpful ways to respond. The first one is denying the stress and claiming, I'm not finding this difficult. I'm not finding this leadership challenge difficult. Uh, and the other one is making the whole stress apology. Have you, have you come across the stress apology? I'm really sorry, everyone. I'm, I'm feeling a bit stressed at the moment. You know, I'm really sorry. I f- I'm, I'm a bit uptight at the moment. I'm a bit stressed. I'm, I'm sorry I'm finding it difficult to deal with the pressure that I'm facing. So you get the stress denial or you get the stress apology what we need to do is recognize that, that um, we are in this zone, this pressurized zone of leadership and ministry, working in a very sensitive and, and sometimes a challenging area of emotional and mental health. And that stress, feeling pressured, feeling pulled, is going to be a natural part of our experience. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a reality. But how we frame it, either by denying it or making an apology for it, it won't help us to grow through it that actually there's a level of stress which is helpful. Um, Kate is next door, I thought, very kind, isn't it, to, um, to involve her in my seminar as well. She's got a fantastic book out at the moment, Refuel, really recommend it to you. But she says, stress describes any change which requires us to respond. And in many ways, I'd say that this is also the nature of what leadership actually is. Leadership is a circumstance which requires us to lead people in to change. Actually, we have to respond to change as leaders. We have to lead people through change. And so stress and leadership actually go hand in hand. They didn't tell you that at theological college when you were learning biblical Greek. You were chilling out at the back of the class thinking, I don't know what this is about. I'm going to play Pong on my phone. Um, But the, the key point of leadership is actually helping people navigate change and navigating change yourself. Therefore, stress describing any change which requires us to respond, describes any leadership situation. This is not a situation that we need to feel anxious about. Hans Sale, in 1936, first described the stress as we understand it as the non-specific response of the body to any demand for change. And you will feel stress and strain in your body. Is it not paradoxical that we can celebrate change as the context of our leadership and yet feel ashamed of the sweat that precedes our leadership's response. And, and I, I, I'm all into, you know, you hear me like ringing in your head, I hope, well, I'm not hoping for that, sounds a bit grandiose, doesn't it? But you'll hopefully, to a level, hear some of these things ringing in your head in the weeks and months ahead. 
that actually that leading is hard and it extends yourself. Being ashamed of leading, that's a mistake. It's unsupportive. Actually, the nature, the sweat of leadership is stress. The sweat of leadership is stress. It's not something for you to apologize for. And I'm a little tired in the church, particularly, that we try to give the impression that everything is so easy. You know, we say glibly, oh, just pray about it. You know, and then suddenly we come in with our testimonies, oh, the Lord, he, you know, he gave me a vision for where we're going to go next, friends, and it just came to me at about sort of five to six this morning, and now I'm delivering it to you, and it's just like that. And we all think that's what leadership looks like, but leadership does not look like that. Leadership with the Lord is, is stressful, it's challenging, it takes prayer and petition and blood, sweat and tears. It's not just this gift. And if we present it as a gift, what we're really trying to do is make it look more spiritual than it really is. If I make it look really unhuman, you'll believe it. If I make it look really like like I'm not involved, you'll, you'll buy it. You'll buy the whole package. If I can make it look like I had nothing to do with thinking about this vision, working hard for this vision, or delivering this vision, it looks like it was just all God and nothing to do with me. And that makes it more palatable, apparently. But then God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to live in fully human and fully divine, to do this incredibly complex work. And I'm thinking, God, it would be much easier if we just sorted that out without involving any human beings. But that's what he chose to do. He's chosen you. You are incarnational. God's presence is alive in you. And the human struggle is part of your struggle. Not to be diminished. Not that we over-spiritualize our experience. Actually, we need to recognize and humanize what's going on inside of us, authentically recognizing which bit is God's and which bit is us, but knowing that you are all in the mix here. This is not an easy ministry. And if you look around the room, you see an awful lot of people in here. Many of them look omnicompetent. And they do. People look very wise in this room. (laughs) But we're all good at that, aren't we? You know, we're all good at the wise advice bit. We're all good at the, heck, yeah, come and have a sit down. I've even got some tissues ready for you in case you cry. <laughs> you know, we look proficient. Many of us are, are professionals. But actually, inside, we're vulnerable. And we can treat ourselves with this sort of harshness that says, oh, I shouldn't be finding this hard. I, I shouldn't be sweating over this. You know, I shouldn't be feeling that this is quite human. But maybe we should. Maybe that's the incarnational ministry that God has called us to. Let's imagine you have been climbing a steep Scottish rock face on your day off. You finally reach the top and some friends have come to meet you uh, for a picnic. You've been climbing up this rock face all day. And when you finally hoik your leg over the top and sort of forward roll onto their tartan rug to indulge in some smoked salmon sandwiches, they look at you in disgust and say, oh, you're a bit sweaty. You'd be like, well, have you seen how far I've had to climb to get up here? You know, you drove up here in the car. Like, I've been climbing all day to get to this picnic. That's what we expect of ourselves. We expect that we can climb up this rock face, forward roll onto the tartan rug and sort of go, here I am, da-da, no sweat. No challenge, no difficulty. And that's before we've even begun to factor in our own mental and emotional health. You know, and I think particularly with this caring narrative, we've disconnected th- 
through the professionalization of ministry in this area, our own emotional and mental health from the emotional and mental health of the people we're trying to serve. It's like, I had a problem, but now I'm fixed, so I can fix you and it won't cost me anything. But that's not true. We struggle still in this body, whether you've got a clinical disorder or not. We struggle with the transference of the emotional setting. We struggle with just the loading up of other people's stories in our own minds. Now, we struggle with our own family issues, our own relational issues, our own health issues. And we expect ourselves to do this work without cost. And actually, what we know is that God has come to carry burden, to lift us, to carry a yoke that is, is less heavy. It's not, it's not a yoke. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry, I haven't got a burden. I haven't got a yoke. It's just all super light for everyone. It's like, actually, there's cost. This is challenging. So we understand this question around stress, that, that is it as bad as we think it is, or do we need to respond to it in a different way? Bill Hybel says of change, great leadership is by definition relentlessly developmental. And, and I, I kind of come back to a courageous leadership several times over the years. I've been working in the church. But I, I kind of like that because I've, I've got that bit in me that says, oh, should it be this hard? But great leadership is, by definition, relentlessly developmental. I like the idea that there's a destination to get to. And when you're going to get there, you can sit down. That's the sort of leadership I'm looking for. But actually, there is not a lot of sitting down because it's relentlessly developmental. And how many of us here struggle with the fact that we work with people? And isn't it great when there's breakthrough? I know it sounds strange. We're thinking, yeah, I work with people. It's really, 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 really difficult working with people, isn't it? Because, you, know, you, 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 you know, you say things like, oh, yeah, we've, um, you know, I, we've seen great breakthrough. We've, we've seen amazing breakthrough. So-and-so is doing so well. Don't we love those moments? Hey, let's all sit down. Because so-and-so who we've been working with for six months now, it's cost us a lot of sweat, uh, is finally well. I mean, you know, within the frame of what wellness looks like. And now we can all sit down. And then we sit down for a couple of weeks, and then they suddenly reappear at the office door again, saying that they're not doing so well. And actually, it's a different set of problems, maybe the same sort of origin. But we're going, oh, no, not another one. I just picked someone else up as well to fill the slot that I was doing the work with you for. Now I've got you back. That means I've doubled my workload. How, can you not just go back a step and just be better for a while until I've got another space in my, in my diary for you? You know, Working with people, leadership with people, it's relentlessly developmental. And, and that's why we need to get really concerned about this whole idea of the holiday break workload. Actually, there's going to be a point at which I can just sit down or stand on the beach with my arms outstretched, looking towards the sunset. We need to think now. Rather than having a destination in mind, we need to think about the destination that we're living in. This present moment, this time for leadership. How can we, if you like, manage that interior moment? Well, I think the first thing to do is challenge ourselves not to predict the future only God knows it. Now, if you want to do well in leadership over the long haul, you have to recognize that your future predictions are often unfounded. And that's particularly true where people care is concerned. Now, if you really invested in emotional and mental health, that means that you have to make very, very sensitive and sometimes non 
predictions of the future. Because actually, a lot of it's really unknown. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, in your experience, how sometimes people can get well just incredibly quickly and against the flow of all of your best advice. <laughs> and you're like, you, you sort of want to take the credit, but then you're going, this actually had nothing to do with me, did it? And they go, no, no, it was that conversation I had with my sister. And, oh, she is a psychotherapist. Oh, no, she's an ice cream seller. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Okay, what advice did she give you? She told me just to chill out and eat more ice cream. <laughs> and, and that's worked for you, has it? Yeah, it's amazing. My life's completely different. <laughs> thinking, why did I spend so long reading all those books? Now, we, we, we have this idea that we can predict the future, and that includes predicting our own burnout. It's like, oh, I'm so stressed at the moment. Six more months of this, and I'm going to be in a psychiatric unit, I'm sure. You know, we paint a picture for our own stress. We go right back to the beginning again. We find that stress isn't just itself. Stress breeds itself. Stress grows itself. Stress propagates itself, because we're already saying, oh, no, I can't cope with this. You are incredibly resilient, far more resilient than you believe. And if you have had an emotional and mental health problem yourself, you probably will have found that it became most acute when you were least self-aware. But as you become more self-aware, even though you might have subsequent episodes of your mental health problem, they diminish in impact largely. And I can't create a universal picture because, as we've said, only God can predict the future. But very often, particularly when neurotic disorders are concerned, people's level of self-insight helps them ultimately to steer a healthier course of life. And, and therefore, you are more equipped and more resilient than you were before. That doesn't mean you have to be brutal with yourself and say, I can take any sort of stress now. You know, look at my past. I know myself really well. I can take on anything. That's not the right approach. But the right approach is actually saying, I will be sympathetic to myself. I will recognize I can't predict the future. But actually, I'm more resilient than I believe. In Luke 12, 20, you see the farmer who thinks he can plan the future. And the future is a holiday stress future. I've got a couple of friends who are farmers. And actually, they work incredibly hard. Whoops. They work incredibly hard. And um, you know, they, the temptation is similar today as it was in Jesus' time. They you know, work incredibly hard, build barns, bigger barns, bigger, bigger barns, and we'll do the song together, and they'll fill them up with corn, and then I'll retire and have a really nice life. But in this story, uh, Jesus says, you know, you fool, this very day, this light, your life will be taken from you. And actually, the thought is that there'll be a time when you can sit down when you can reap the rewards of your ministry. But God is asking you to live today, today. In your ministry, how can you live today, today? Uh, lunchtime, as I was, I was chatting to my dad, and my dad was saying, you know, you've got to take it easy. You know, what, what are you doing to switch off this weekend? I said, Dad, I just switch off. Like, I'm, you know, <laughs> he's like, what, what does that mean? I said, well, I, I literally can just, I just switch off. Now, for me, switching off is, I like to go for a long run, so I live just down the road, and I run up and down the river. And I don't think about anything. I used to, but I don't anymore. I decided that's quite unhealthy. So now I just think about running. It's really quite boring. Um, but it's so recharging. Actually saying, I'm running now. Sometimes I run for 45 minutes or an hour. And I just don't think about anything. I look at the trees when it's sunny or light, sometimes it's dark, so I just look at my head torch on the ground, which is less interesting even than the trees. You know, I keep, I keep meandering along and I give myself some headspace because I've realized it doesn't matter whether I'm standing on the seashore of some beauty, beautiful island somewhere that I've ever been in, like that, but if I was standing there, I could just carry on the narrative in my own mind that I'm exacting in my day-to-day -day life. 
the question is, am I switching off? Am I giving my mind time to rest? You can be in an incredibly wonderful, beautiful, sunny idyll somewhere, stressing. Or you can be in the heart of the city, in the grit and the grime, relaxing. It's up to you. You decide. Our worst predictions uh, go something like this. <coughs> this is our performance. Now, this is what we, we, we think when we're inactive, our performance is low. Then we, we're sort of laid back here and we're still relatively low. And then we're up here in the fatigue zone. Our performance is very high. And then we kick down into the exhaustion zone. And then we become anxious, panicky, and angry. And then we have breakdown. Have you seen this before? I tell you, it's a terrible curse. I mean... It, you know, on one level, yes, it's helpful. But you know, management consultants make these sort of things. No offence to any management consultant in the room. This is not how life actually is. But you've seen this before and you believe that it's true. Life is not this sweet bell curve. And actually, what happens when you're up here and your mum dies? What, what happens up here when you get cancer? What happens up here when your client list breaks down, when you're sued for malpractice? What What happens? Is it like a never-ending road to break down? And if you're feeling anxiety, panic, or anger, are you already in the red zone and there's no way back? No. You know, we absorb that kind of material and we think, oh, yeah, that's it. Like, I've got to be really careful now because I'm definitely in this bit and therefore I'm definitely going to end up in this bit. I want to say, actually, your life is not like that. You know, it doesn't look like that sweet bell curve. And it is not possible to predict where you are on this scale or even how it really relates to your performance. Because I can tell you, friends, I can be in this zone right down here. I can be lying on my back feeling pretty anxious. And I've realized that actually sometimes when I'm working, that's when I feel most laid back. Isn't that an irony? And yet when I'm relaxing, I can think I'm having a breakdown. Isn't that weird? You know, our minds are complex, and the reason I'm showing you this is, is to help you stop making such negative predictions of your future work. Now, if you want to manage stress and challenge for the long haul, yes, it's helpful to have a loose framework about how overdoing it can have a negative impact on your emotional health. But when we start making really fixed predictions of what our futures are going to look like when we work hard, then we're almost inviting the challenge. We're almost saying, oh, this is going to happen next. We begin to talk it up. And challenging predictions looks a bit like this catastrophizing is all or nothing thinking. I'm either well or I'm ill. There's nothing in between. Generalizing the negative, everything always seems to be going wrong in my work right now. Historic evidence, oh, I, I felt like this before, and that's when I was hospitalized. Uh, environmental, emotional reasoning, oh, I feel anxious, therefore there must be massive problems in my life. Self-referencing, oh, I've seen this before in my life and I know what's coming next. Hyper-responsibility, I'm responsible for everyone else. For everything that's going on in their world, for all of my clients, for all of my parishioners, everyone else's illness or issue is my responsibility. And a more realistic outlook is, is more moderate. It sees the positives and the negatives. It's present slash future focus, but more present than anything else. It demonstrates emotional awareness rather than emotional reasoning. It's saying, actually, I'm aware of these feelings. I'm aware of my experience of these feelings, but they don't mean that X, Y, or Z is going to happen. And then there's an inclusive vision rather than a self-referencing vision. And that can often inv involve talking to friends or colleagues or prayer partners about their experience and how they perceive your experiences. And this proportionate responsibility. I have a part to play in the well-being of these people, but actually I don't play the whole part. I'm not wholly responsible. 
I believe that your determined mentality can be your greatest asset when you cannot do any less. Your determined mentality is your greatest asset when you cannot do any less. And I use that word boldly, cannot do any less, because there are many circumstances in which you cannot do any less. If you're a primary carer for someone who's seriously ill, then you cannot do any less. And what you need to do know is that actually it's not doing less that will give you freedom. It's actually your, it's your determined mentality that will give you freedom. And God invites this in you. you know, God calls you to this. This is the heart stuff, to set your heart like flint towards him. To invite, to welcome all of those gifts of the Spirit within you. It's not that God's saying, hey, you know what, you, you know, when this situation is over, you'll be fine. God's saying, in this situation, right now, I want to give you everything you need for life and for living. Um, this is a little picture of me and my wife. As you see, we like physical challenges. This is at the top of Mount Kinabalu in, um, in Southeast Asia. It's the highest mountain in Southeast Asia. This is, is 4,095 metres, which is 14,500 footsteps. I didn't work that out, by the way. Um, and uh, this is a very triumphant morning. Now, I just had an anxiety breakdown uh, in the sort of autumn preceding this. And my wife uh, decided that the best thing for me would be to go trekking in, in Borneo uh, for a month. So <laughs> I was like, are you sure you want, you know, sure this is the right thing to do? Like, we want to fly to Southeast Asia and go trekking in the jungles where there are no hospitals, no psychiatric help, you know, no counsellors, no Valium. Uh, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to work this out? And, and my wife, who's mentally in incredibly strong, uh, she said to me, you know, she, she understands depression very well, by the way. She's, well, she, she's one of these people who I'd say is very mentally strong. And she said to me, look, the best thing you can do is to press out, you know, to change your mentality. If you become a victim in your circumstances, you're going to let this encroach on you. It's going to steal your joy and your peace. Let's press out together. So I said, look, love, I trust you. Let's, you know, let's see how it goes. I had no idea what sort of the extent of the adventure was going to be, but this involved scaling this mountain, and you had to sleep in a hut at sort of three-quarters of the way up before ascending at 2.30 in the morning with head torches up these rocks where people die every year, and you just hold on to this little rope at the side if it gets a bit steep. So it's brilliant if you've got an anxiety disorder. <laughs> it's what they call exposure and response prevention in the business. You know, but what, what's interesting about this is that it, it, it taught me about resilience training. And resilience training has become really popular in our pressured workplaces today, not least for senior leaders. I've been doing some work in some of the law firms and accounting firms in London recently around resilience and emotional health in the, in, in the workplace. And the reality is that management works by limiting work volumes and supplying resources to, to facilitate, if you like, good outcomes. Leadership, on the other hand, has no objective limiter on work volumes. So if you're being managed, the manager allocates you an amount of work to do, resources to do it, and a time frame to do it in. And they assess whether or not they think that that is an achievable aim. But in leadership, no one is providing you with measurable outcomes. No one is providing you with resources for those measurable outcomes. Actually, you're called to discern yourself how you're going to employ those outcomes. You have to make a judgment call on your own well-being. No one's managing you. And in emotional and mental health particularly, many of us are working without any parameters, any guidelines. You know, some of your clinicians might have clinics that you're operating in. That doesn't mean you're not concerned about your clients when they've left your clinic. 
but all of us will find that there are incredibly flexible and diffuse boundaries where it comes to our own work in leadership. And the best way to ensure good outcomes in the long term is through developing this determined mindset and high levels of resilience. Um, what, what is resilience? Resilience is a process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, according to the American Psychological Association. So you, you've got this issue around adaption. How can I adapt well to my circumstances? How can I make a change effectively in my circumstances? It, not in the practicalities of them, but in the mindset I carry towards them. And what's really interesting about climbing Mount Kinabalu, as I've put here, it's so steep that they've cut steps into the mountainside. And there are 200 flights of stairs. And they are literally flights of stairs. The steps are very high, and you have sticks, and you have to kind of step up. And then you'll go on a meandering path, and you'll find another flight of stairs. But there are 200 flights of stairs. Now, every time you approach a flight of stairs on Mount Kinabalu, the best thing you can do is look at the flight of stairs that you happen to be climbing. The worst thing you could possibly do is look at the top of the mountain and think, oh, I've only got 200 flights of stairs to go. You know, your mindset, your mentality in resilience is about creating a localised approach to your leadership. It's saying, actually, today, in this moment, how can I lead well? And leading well is not leading just well for the person that you're leading. It's leading well in yourself. It's leading yourself well and with compassion. And so resilience, I say, it might be the bottom of the mountain, but the top of the staircase. Now, in your leadership, you might be at the bottom of the mountain, but at the top of the staircase. And I think if we have a holiday-worthy approach to stress and challenge and leadership, we'll always find ourselves thinking for the Thompson holiday six months down the line. But if you have a resilience-based approach to leadership, we're saying today, how can I care for myself today? And I think long-term well-being is about stringing together days of care. Imagine every staircase involves outward-focused leadership and inward-focused leadership. Every day that you accumulate 25% of inward-focused leadership is another step towards a whole day of focused leadership on the self. Every four days, there's a day for you because you've spent 25% of your time leading yourself and 75% of your time leading other people. But if you go all out, 100% outward, outworking, for the week, you've got nothing for you. You've invested nothing in yourself. You haven't treated yourself with compassion and kindness, and you've created this backlog in your own mind where stress and strain has to be repaid. You're, playing, you're paying out of an empty bank account. So think about mountains and molehills. Climb the molehill. And every molehill combined, the next molehill will create the mountain that you're seeking to climb in your leadership. The next really important point I want to make, I know we've, we, we've got just 20 minutes left. I know it's hot in here, so I'll, uh, I've got a little fan here. I might bring it forward to bless the people at the front row, and they'll have to just pass on the blessing. Um, it's don't hate time. You know, God created time. It's a gift. People say things like, oh, time's always on my back. Time's always against me. Time's never on my side. You know, I'm always on the backside of time. There's never enough time in the day. There's never enough time in the week. There's never enough time in the year. I've got no time left. I'm out of time. Those phrases roll off my tongue so easily. It's like God created time, and I'm just saying, God, you just didn't create enough. Can you make some more, please, especially for me? It's such a strange attitude. When you think about it, time is one of the only things that is fixed. 
It's like bemoaning time. God's not going to go, oh, yes, well, you know what, let's wind the clock back a bit for you. Take off a few of the wrinkles, you know, a few years extra for you just because you're moaning about it. It's just not going to happen. God is not going to give me more time. I've got the time that I've got. He's not going to change the clock because of me. Time rolls on. And our attitude towards time will have a really big effect on our emotional and mental health and leadership. Actually, what we need to do is change our approach to time. Too many leaders, especially Christian ones, have fallen into the trap of hating time, as if it's some belligerent taskmaster who's tapping their watch and willing our failure. Oh, you've not got enough time for this. Oh, you're never going to make it. Oh, they're never going to get well. Oh, you're never going to fix it. There's just not enough time. And when I meet leaders, especially leaders on retreat, Christian leaders, they like almost stagger in the door and fall on the floor. Oh, so busy. Like, it's just so boring. I'm honestly, I'm like, really? Have you got any other complaints that are more interesting than that one? Because I've just heard that one so many times. The, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy because like, basically I've got no time in my life. You know, time is the one thing that cannot be changed, but it shouldn't just be tolerated. It's a gift from God. This is uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. He said, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, the courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. That's the serenity prayer you'll know well from uh, the AA meetings. Um, The key point here is time is one of the things, you might not know it well from AA meetings yourself, (laughs) just to be clear. I know I said you would know it well from AA meetings wasn't meant to be loaded towards anyone in the room, particularly not least all of you, although there might be some. That's okay. Just to be clear, time was the one thing. It's one thing that you cannot change, but the only thing you can change where time is concerned is your attitude towards time. Why spend your whole life hating one thing that God has made? Instead, why not love it? You know, in in 1793, the French tried to take control of time away from the church and establish a new calendar, a new clock, and a 10-day working week. By 1805, just 12 years of chaos later, breakdown and confusion, the old order was quickly restored. They went to 10-day working weeks and everyone had a breakdown. Literally, France went completely crazy because they changed the clock. God has created this seven-day rhythm for our life. You know, biologically, we're equipped to deal with stress and your sympathetic nervous system releases, you know, this, these incredible hormones for you. The sympathetic system helps you to calm down and to recover well over the course of a seven-day plan, including cycles of sleep and eating. Most leaders are equipped to deal with stresses. In fact, they are principally leaders because they're experts in dealing with change and therefore they're experts in dealing with stress. So let's change our approach to time and actually ask ourselves, is there a better way of working? I arrive early for all my meetings now. You know why? Because I like to have time to spare. Time's always on my side. I've always got time for people if I arrive early. I can talk to people. It's great. You will have seen me buzzing around here for about 15 minutes before the meeting began because I like to waste time. I like to put my hands into God's pockets and just give some time away because time is God's greatest gift. It's a great commodity. And when people say, oh, you've got time for me, that says to them that they have value. So why should we live in time poverty? Why not live in time strength? Why not be wealthy with time and say, this is God's gift to me. I'm going to use it liberally. I'm going to waste time. 
I make a great decision about wasting time. I like it. Some people say, why aren't you cycling? I say, because I like to take longer to get to my destination. And then when I'm cycling, they say, why aren't you using the tube? Oh, because I like to ride and you know, sometimes I get lost and it's great. I haven't even got a timetable for today, which is worrying some people, but don't worry, I, I keep an eye on my clock. Someone told me beforehand how long I had. You know, the key thing is changing your attitude toward time and start by changing your language. Finally, in this little group of activities, expectations are not facts. Stress that is positive, a good stretch, is nothing to be feared. You know, it's important to recognize that a good stretch is nothing to be feared. You are equipped to deal with stress, but you're not necessarily well equipped to deal with people's expectations. And in this work that you're doing, People will have incredible expectations, expectations of what you can achieve for them. How many of us have had someone come to us and say, I hear you're really good at this. I've got really complex problems, so I'm really looking forward to spending time with you. How long do you think it will be before you can fix me? How, what's the normal course of recovery from this particular issue in your experience? I've heard you're really good. My friend came to see you and now she's really, really well. Oh, I didn't know she was ill when she met me. Oh, yeah, she was really ill, but not as ill as I am. <laughs> right. You know, expectations are not facts. Your expectations of yourself and other people's expectations of you. Be flexible with yourself. Recognize that actually living time present, not always referencing outcomes, will assist you in your work and ministry, will help you to live well. Change your expectations of yourself. Lower them. Surprise yourself. I always wonder why we have a bar really high that we go under when we could put the bar really low and jump over it really highly. We go, ha-ha, look, I cleared the bar. Strange, I think we should reverse the Olympic high jumping so they get more and more encouraged as it goes lower and lower. And then we estimate how high over the bar they jumped. Wow, you jumped three centimetres over the bar, well done. And now you've jumped nine centimetres over the bar. That's definitely worth a medal. Encourage one another. Lower your expectations so you can surprise yourself. God, just to be clear, is not putting the bar over your head. He's created works in advance for you to do, not someone who's taller than you. Positive stress is a good stretch, but destructive strain is a long, long stretch. So caring for yourself today means that you'll stay in the productive stress zone not in the destructive strain zone. And a large part of that is accepting with gratitude today's experience. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When I climbed Mount Kinabalu, every time we climbed one staircase, me and Louis looked round, looked down and said, Oh, that was good. We got up that one. And I made it my practice climbing that mountain to give thanks every time I climbed up a staircase because every staircase was one staircase closer to my goal. Who climbs the mountain quicker? Me or the person who's looking at the top of the mountain? The person who's looking at the top of the mountain. Who had more fun climbing the mountain? Me. Who would have climbed the mountain again? Me. Because I stopped to give thanks for what had already happened. If we're perfectionists, we'll never stop and give thanks. But if we stop and give thanks today for what God is doing in our lives and our ministry, we'll stay in the, in the stretch zone, but we won't move into strain. We can see everything in great perspective. Being presently grateful is about 
saying, I will be grateful for this day. In Philippians 4.12, Paul says, I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I am, particularly in the church, are struck by kind of leaders who make great proclamations about, you will be healed today, or you will you know, have a bigger car tomorrow, or you will have more money in your bank account the next day. You know, if you just believe more, if you have more faith. And, and, and we're called to look as a marker of our faith towards a destination of our achievements or our acquirements. And, and I see Paul, who's got a thorn in his side and he's suffering in chains, talking about the secret of contentment in all circumstances. I'm thinking we're reading a different gospel. The work we're called to, friends, just to be clear, in case you were in the wrong room or the wrong seven or the wrong conference, is not the one where you get the bigger car and the bigger house and the healthier body and the cleaner mind or whatever it is that they're looking for the the work that we do together here is about recognizing that we're people who are if you like in the struggle zone working with people in the struggling zone and that's okay that's where God's called us to be that's where he's called us to work and that's why learning the secret of being content in all circumstances is particularly relevant for us you know when you work in that place of pain thanking God is a sweetness it's a sweet joy it's a it's a bread in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I'm thinking, oh, that's what I need today. That's what the people I'm ministering to need. They need the bread. They need the water. They need this satisfaction that comes from God. And I, I really believe, and the last couple of months I've been writing with Rob on, on perfectionism. We ended with a compassion and gratitude as the sort of these great pillars I've been enjoying just saying, God, I'm so thankful. Every day I'm, I'm just going around, I'm saying, oh God, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that person. It sounds a bit twee, like I'm suddenly becoming really super spiritual, which I'm so not. But I want to tell you, it's really revolutionized my experience of life. You know, and even when you're dealing with difficult people, I try and think of one or two things about them that I think I'm quite grateful for. Saying, God, oh, thanks for that person, for this that they're good at, or for that part of their personality that I like. Not the other bits that I don't like so much, but I'm just going to thank you for that bit. Um, and, you know, it's, it changes you by being presently grateful. You know, uh, the Greek, in Greek mythology, the gods punished a man called Tantalus. And uh, Tantalus had, was disapproved of by the gods. And so they, 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 got, they got Tantalus to stand in a sea of fruits. And he could eat whatever he wanted to eat, but he would never be satisfied. And I, I thought a lot about Tantalus, from which we get the word tantalizing. You know, he wants to grab it and it's going to satisfy him. It's not going to satisfy him. There's a lot in leadership which is like Tantalus's experience. You know, there's a lot of fruits. And it feels like if we could just get so good at this or if we could get so, so good at that, then we'll be satisfied. You know, and actually, we won't find satisfaction in our labor. I don't, I don't believe that we will. Not in that sort of way. We won't find satisfaction in our achievements. Have you noticed when you get there, you just want to go on and do something else? You won't be satisfied with the next book you write or the next person who says, whoopee, I'm healed through your ministry. You won't get that sort of satisfaction really from anywhere. But it feels like you will, so you keep on trying to eat that kind of fruit. The only satisfaction you really get in knowing that is knowing that you're a child of God and knowing actually he delights in you in the work that you're doing, however big or small. There's no competition in this room. It doesn't matter whether you're working with one person or 10,000 people. The reality is, is if you're in that place of gratitude with God where you know that he loves you and you're his precious child and you're doing works that he's prepared in advance for you to do, that's where you find satisfaction. 
Now, I've worked with some very, very rich and very, very successful people, and I can tell you, a lot of them are really, really unhappy and really, really dissatisfied. The most satisfied people I've ever worked with in the world were in an AIDS orphanage in Uganda, you know, and I had nothing. But I tell you, they were satisfied. And we need to find satisfaction in who God has created us to be and in the ministry he's called us to as his children, not through the outcomes that we're seeking. That way we can avoid unnecessary strain and, and live in a helpful stretch. I'm going to invite my friend uh, Ron Bushager to come out just as we close this session, uh, just in this last few minutes, because Ron is a great friend. He's also a priest, but he's also a very eminent psychotherapist who works with lots and lots of priests like me at Talbot Court Therapy and in, in other settings in the diocese. We've done some work together. Ron, in your experience of working with leaders like me, what would you say are the main stress uh, challenges that they face? Well, I, I, I remember talking to a, a, a psychotherapist once, and he, he said, you know, it's almost pathological what priests and Christian leaders end up, uh, how they end up coming to us, coming, coming into therapy, because there are so many pressures and there's so much stress. And I think, I think the, the trick is around self-awareness. I think leaders have a responsibility towards self-awareness so they can see the expectations that are placed on them. And they can have a sense of, um, of, of, of the projections of, of what, what people are requiring of them or believing of them in that moment when they're just ordinary people trying to do a good job with, with the resources in front of them. What have you seen in the way of their approach to recovery? I mentioned the kind of the holiday forward view. What, how, have you seen them, how have you seen the issue of self-regulation amongst Christian leaders? Self-regulation, yeah. I mean, I, 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 think, I, think, I think it's really important for, for any leader to have a safe space and a place to understand and explore the idea of self-regulation. Because it's kind, of like, um, it's kind of like a boat. I mean, a lot of leaders, they, they, they don't like limits. They don't like that they, that they, don't, that they might have to slow down. And so maybe it's like a, like a boat going, going full speed forward, when actually sometimes there might be a little a ding on the hull of that boat that might end up catching water, or there might, they might, they might have, be really low on petrol, or that, that sort of thing. And so there need to be people around them to be able to say, hey, are, are you just aware of your limits? Are you aware of your gauges? Um, and let me help you be aware of your gauges. And the, the leader needs to, needs to bring that into themselves and self-regulate. They also need other people around them. What have you seen of that, what I talked about, the harsh self-narrative, the harsh sort of internal narrative, the sort of inner bully and the inner critic amongst Christian leaders? Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. I think what's dangerous is when that becomes super spiritualized, when God turns into that critical voice uh, over top of someone. I mean, spirituality, a Christian leadership, should, should be about someone released into freedom, the freedom in which God has called them to lead and to live. But what sometimes happens is that they, they take this kind of perfect image, this idealized picture of what God requires of them, and then they let that be their guiding principle, which is just it's, it's a recipe for exhaustion. And, and it leaves people really, um, well, it's, 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 not the kind of, it's not a picture of the kind of God I want to follow. When it comes to issues of caring for others, what would you how would you describe a healthy interaction between the client and the professional or the person in the caring role and the person receiving care? What do you mean? So how would you say that, uh, how would you talk about, or how would you encourage this group to com be compassionate towards themselves in the caring role? Um, do you know, do you know it's, it's, um, it's Pastor Appreciation Month? Did you know that? 
I, I saw this. I'm sure it's an American invention. I don't mind American inventions myself. But, uh, but, uh, but I'm, I'm sure... Oh, are we, are we at time? Um, okay. But uh, I, I, I think, I think there, there is something about the need to, to be good to ourselves, to be aware of what we're, what we're taking in, and, uh, and to celebrate. I really like the idea of finishing with gratitude. And, and it makes me think that one of the things about gratitude is that we can, that, that marks an end. Uh, gratitude says, I, I have accomplished this, or I'm, uh, and, and actually I'm going to celebrate it. And I think we, we need to, it, there's a kind of happy boundary about gratitude. And, uh, and there's a lot to, to celebrate and, and be very, very pleased about. So, so for those of us who are leaders, and, and as, as Will said, we are all leaders, we can celebrate that aspect of our leadership. And also for the people around us, where we put high expectations on those around us, well, um, may, maybe it's also Pastor's Appreciation Month for them. I like the sound of Pastor's Appreciation Month. Thanks, everyone. You've been great. Um, Lots of, uh, lots of food for thought, I think, and some starters for 10 on some ways in which we can uh, adapt our approach. I know we have to rush upstairs now into the main uh, hall for, um, I think there was going to be the launch of the Mental Health Access Pack now. So if you'd like to head straight to there, do not pass go, do not collect 200 pounds, etc., etc., and, uh, and then we're into the main hall for our final session, I think.